Today's episode of Your Stories is brought to you by Know Your Company. Got 25 to 75 people in your company? Check out knowyourcompany.com, software that helps companies like Airbnb know their company better. Thanks, Know Your Company. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hey everyone, I'm Eric Garneau, and this is part one of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast, featuring the theme Intrigue, as chosen by our special guests for the show, the creators of Taylor Swift's Girl Detective, Larissa Zagaris and Kitty Curran. You'll hear from Larissa and Kitty this episode, as well as storytellers and great folks Nate Bechtel, James Gordon, Ruby Desjardins, and Andrew Bentley. And you'll get music from myself, Jim Snedeker, Becca Brown, Claire Friedman, and Dwight Hassler. This is a tremendously fun night, and we really hope you enjoy listening to it. Um, Before we get to the show, let me again thank our sponsors for this week, Know Your Company, and thanks, of course, to the Chicago Podcast Co-op for supporting shows like ours. If you want to help support shows like ours, like ours, uh, a super cool thing to do is rate and review us on iTunes. That really helps a ton with getting listeners. Uh, If you really want to support us, you can be like Mr. Jared Cannonberg and a bunch of other wonderful human beings who support us on Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com slash nerdalogs and check out the rewards you can get for tossing us a few bones every month. Uh, We really, really appreciate anything you want to give, and trust me, there are some really sweet exclusives coming soon. And of course, thank you so much to Jared for your very generous donation on Patreon. I hope you enjoy your gift box. Otherwise, friends, enjoy the hell out of the show. You guys are never going to guess what music we're playing tonight. Anyone got any crazy guesses? It's Bob Dylan. Yeah, it's all Bob Dylan tonight, baby. All Bob Dylan. When um, I think of intrigue, I think of Bob Dylan. Yeah. Robert Zimmerman, real name. Uh, alias. He does have an alias. That's very intriguing. Uh, no, you guys, you guys are going to know these songs. Uh, cool. I guess all I'll say is this is the video version of this song, which is the more fun version. Because, baby, now we got bad life. You know we used to be mad, love So take a look what you done So baby, now we got bad blood Hey! I can't take it back, look where I'm at We was OD like D.O.C., remember that? My TLC was quite OD, I D my facts 
Now POV of you and me similar, I rap. I don't hate you, but I hate you. Critique overrates you. These beats of a dark heart, these bass lines to replace you. Take time and erase you. Love don't hear no more. No, I don't fear no more. But he can respect it quite sincere no more. Hey! Remember when you tried to write me off Remember when you thought I'd take a loss Don't you remember you thought that I would need ya Follow procedure, remember? Oh wait, you got amnesia? It was my system for battle wounds, battle scars, body bump Brute stabbed in the back, brimstone fire jumping through Still all my life, I got money and power And you gotta live with the bad blood now But you never let it go Yeah, band-aids don't fix bullet holes You say sorry just for show You live like that, you live with ghosts If you love like that stories like i said we have the creators of taylor swift girl detective in the house we're gonna open with one of them she's done a show before wonderful storyteller can't wait to hear from larissa zagaris So, uh, we created this book, Taylor Swift, Girl Detective, and the Secrets of the Starbucks Lovers, based off of our blog, which started as photo captions yeah. of Taylor Swift wearing um, dresses much like this one. Kind of uh, looking like Nancy Drew. Kind of looking like Nancy Drew, before she started wearing outfits like this one, when she was dating Calvin Harris. And you'll notice, uh, if you Google image search Taylor Swift every day, like we do, uh, that she's back to dressing like her normal detective Indeed. self. Um, Hiddleston's been a good influence. Yes, perfect influence. So we created this book and are really pleased that everyone's here uh, for the intriguing reason of finding out more about it and more about our speakers. And we're looking forward to hearing them tell us funny and scary and sexy things in their stories. <laughs> and because uh, we wanted to share something full of 
intrigue with you, or as we pronounce it, intrigue. Um, we chose the most intriguing set of chapters from the book. Uh, and we will, like grade school, show you the images as we read it. And for those of you listening at home, maybe we can have a link or something yeah. to them. Okay. Okay. Chapter 15. Welcome to Red Hook. There were three things Taylor Swift didn't understand about Brooklyn. One, why it seems so far away from her apartment. <laughs> Two, why hipsters seem drawn to it like moths to an independently released under-the-radar flame. <laughs> Three, why the ducks there only seem to accept deliveries in the dead of night. It also seemed colder in Brooklyn in the dead of night. She looked to Paul in his well-worn H&M cardigan and shuddered. Under his eyes were bags bigger than the Dolce & Gabbana number she always carried on her wrist. <laughs> As sensing her gaze, Paul let out a gruff whisper. Should be any minute now. Paul is a Starbucks barista. Uh, <laughs> that got into some intrigue. Intrigue with Taylor. Uh, shipment comes, so does our money. And your orders. Taylor whispered, less gruffly. Paul nodded. Taylor shivered. She was glad she had told Alan Lagjiki to stay in the car. His delicate frame not, may not have been a good fit for the harsh Brooklynite night and whatever intrigue it held. Taylor noticed the shadowy shapes at the edge of her vision. There were dock workers endlessly unpacking their hall, just like in Law and Order. Some were likely Paul's partners in petty crime. You have to open in a few hours? She asked him in a whisper. Paul's only response was a haunted, searching stare that made her soul think of Grammy Award-winning hooks. His eyes were the exact colour of faded seagrass on Cape Cod's national seashore at twilight. How had she not realised before? What's this stump called again? Lord kicked an empty bottle of kombucha around the dock. <laughs> Taylor shook her head. You knew you were in a rough Brooklyn neighbourhood when the health drink bottles were discarded improperly. She'd have to reach out to Lena and see if she could put some pressure on the older men for a more stringent recycling programme. Red Hook. Taylor responded and pulled her curl leather jacket by Jay Brand tighter around her shoulders. Lord snorted, pleased. Sounds like a bloody pirate. Shh! Paul's already tense shoulders ratcheted up their intensity. She's here. Paul pulled Taylor down behind a large stack of boxes some other dock worker had already left unpacked. Lord ducked out of view behind a comically large net of fresh-caught fish. <laughs> Bloody red hook, Taylor thought. She heard her curse as she disappeared from view. A water taxi slid almost silently up to the pier. Commanding the vessel was a young woman who looked like Bianca, only a version more interested in treading on her enemies than the boards. <laughs> the young woman was helped off the water taxi and onto the dock by some frightened-looking minions. One was wearing a Starbucks hat and the same haunted expression Paul usually did. Katarina! Taylor whispered breathlessly. She caught Paul's hand in hers and gave it a near-involuntary squeeze. It elicited a sharp, choked response from him. Taylor looked at him, concerned. Pain and something like regret flashed through those Cape Cod eyes of his. Taylor hardly had time to be confused as Paul leapt to his feet. Pumpkin spice latte! He screamed. <laughs> the lumberista's voice boomed out over the Hudson like Taylor's did at the garden. Katerina's <laughs> eyes narrowed. Two nondescript heavies materialised from the shadows of the water taxi. They fired warning shots from their very SVU-looking guns into the air. <laughs> Paul leapt into action, wincing only slightly as he pulled Taylor to safety. 
You set me up. Taylor's eyes went wider than the marketing campaign for 1989. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Paul whispered, avoiding a hurt gaze. But you do what you had to do for your cats. I don't care if I die, but if I did, who would look after Mr. Snuggles? Chapter 16. Special Victims. Who <laughs> would indeed? Katerina laughed mirthlessly, the staccato sound piercing the night like an SVU celebrity guest star stabbing their day player victim. For a short woman, she seemed to tower over them like a skyscraper. You're the mastermind behind all this. The jewel smuggling, the intimidation, the Brooklyn. Taylor accused, staggering to her feet. Of course I am, Taylor Swift. Katerina smirked. Just like you're the mastermind behind countless pop and country hits. We know, please don't hurt her. Paul squeaked out, terrified. Katerina shot him down with a withering glare that seemed to take him down a few pegs. You said you wouldn't hurt her, he pleaded. Katerina's eyes twinkled villainously. I said I wouldn't. Gentlemen? And she snapped her fingers. Immediately, two heavies pinned Taylor's incredibly long arms behind her back. <laughs> Taylor struggled against them, but no amount of cardio sculpt could help her now. <laughs> Katerina's voice dripped with more artificial sweetness than a Mr. Softy cone on a hot day. I appreciate your work with Swift. Shake It Off is a cute song. But honestly, I'm disappointed. Your business is show business, not mine. I do hate to disappoint. Taylor smirked. And I'd hate to disappoint your sister any more than you have by disappearing from her life without a word of goodbye or explanation. This well-placed bub visibly rattled Katerina. Listen, Katerina growled. We both wanted to be actors, but when that didn't work out for me, I found a very comfortable sideline in gem smuggling on the black market. I pay these baristas to scare my sister off so she doesn't get hurt. Do you really think a girl who thinks that a bit part on an episode of SVU is her big break can handle heavies who find out I have someone close to me they can squeeze when times get tough? Taylor didn't say anything, but the thought of Bianca in the hands of the heavies she was currently in the hands of, it wasn't pretty. Katerina smiled savagely and continued. Bianca is my sister. I think I know what's best for her, not some jumped-up little singer-songwriter, especially one who comes to a stakeout that is clearly a setup alone except for her latest pathetic crush. Taylor burned with the fires of a thousand bad blood videos. <laughs> Still, she kept her voice even. I didn't come alone. Katerina laughed her terrible laugh again. <laughs> That's right. You brought Lord... As if on cue, a net behind the net of fish Lord was hiding behind was raised high into the night sky by a crane Taylor hadn't paid enough attention to before. Contained within the net was a very displeased, bound and gagged Lord. She was kicking like hell. Lord! Taylor screamed. New Zealanders, so easy to distract with a plate of pavlova and a well-rigged trap. <laughs> Tears welled in Taylor's eyes. Don't worry about your friend. Katerina smirked. Kiwis float, right? <laughs> the net shot over the Hudson. Taylor screamed. So she noticed, did Paul. Katerina smiled and snapped at her minions. Drop the net, kill the crush, and make the pop star watch. You're a monster, Taylor said. I'm efficient, Katerina responded. And you are alone. What did you expect? What I always expect. Taylor smiled. My squad. <laughs> Chapter 17. Squad goals. <laughs> There was a rustling in the shadows. What once looked to be humble stevedores now revealed themselves to be the fiercely glamorous and intelligent members of Taylor's squad. They were ready and waiting to, for their moment to, to defend their friend, 
and the general idea of justice. <laughs> Everyone was there. Carly Kloss, Selena Gomez, Lena Dunham, Gigi Hadid, Cara Delevingne, and... Is that Zendaya? Katerina's voice quaked with something unlike fear. The very same. Zendaya spat and dr- brandished her dagger. <laughs> you may have pathos and murderous minions, Katerina. Taylor half spoke, half sang at her anniversary. But by the power of feminism, I have sisterhood. I have friendship. I have... Lord of the bloody net who is pissed as bloody hell as you! Lord screamed from the height of the net, which she was now using a sort of trapeze, having torn free of her bindings. <laughs> and me! At that moment, Alan Lagjiki ran up to the scene, a worse word tray of independently owned coffee shop lattes in one hand and his umbrella in the other. He clotheslined the heavies with it. Taylor escaped their weakened grasp in time to watch him strike down Katerina with the umbrella, causing the villainous to stumble into Zendaya's outstretched arms. What now, boss? Zendaya cried into the sudden calm. The fierce beauty of Taylor's squad lit up the night like the forest chandeliers in her wonderstruck perfume commercial. <laughs> Paul took this in with no shortage of awe, and perhaps love. Taylor smiled. Now, she said, let's get Katerina some coffee. We will hear more from Kitty and Larissa at the end of the show, and you can pick up that book during intermission. But for now, we have another storyteller, uh, no stranger to this stage, but as I must importantly note every time he comes up, the world's greatest Magic the Gathering player, Nate Bacto. Yes! How are you all doing? Uh, the darling Larissa has mocked me repeatedly for liking pugs and French bulldogs, so I'm going to do the opposite of intrigue tonight to spite her. <laughs> also because it's my strong suit. I don't know if you've noticed, but I don't appear to be a complex man. <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) Uh, But lately I've been having a lot of trouble dealing with this year for reasons that really don't need delving into. We've all been here for a while. We're up to date. Uh, But I've recently had a roommate uh, who's been unemployed and uh, smoked so much uh, that we've been watching a lot of wrestling. There's a direct correlation between them. And I've been learning more about wrestling, actually. It's been actually kind of fun. Once you embrace that everybody knows it's fake and every outcome is true, and you start watching actors and performers do stunts that actually do kind of hurt them, it's a fun time. And you get to learn fun terms like heel and babyface, your heroes and your villains. And I slowly began to go, oh, holy shit, that's all the 2016 election is. Is a wrestling show. (laughs) Because we have our heel, the figure who says inflammatory things just to piss off the audience, only to see their popularity grow because of that. We have our mid-card jobber, who is the audience's favorite, and gets a push just from their cheering and chanting for them. But unfortunately, they didn't go far because there's a golden boy-like figure who the authority really wants to push through as the champion. (laughs) 
And you have commenters that really want to tell you all about the action, even though like, yeah, I can kind of see it, but they really want to frame it for you, let you know who's good, who's bad. And then just like, can you just kind of picture it a little bit? Donald Trump, he's billed as the Trump card because of course he is. He's entering a Royal Rumble with 15 other wrestlers. He's got to knock them all out so he gets his chance at the belt. Meanwhile, over at the DNC SmackDown, we've got H-Dog and Bernie Slammers going at it. <laughs> and granted, there were three other people in the rings, but they're locals that got squashed real easy, thrown out of the ring. We don't have to talk about them. Uh, and when Bernie loses, he then spends most of his time trying to push H-Dog over, always pointing himself in the ring, maybe stepping a little bit back, but making sure she's the one getting the spotlight, which is fun, <laughs> kind of. I was a little bit in his corner, don't give up. Um, <laughs> but then you see them have to call out tag team partners just to keep the feud going a little bit because to be honest the storyline's been stale for about a year now we know what's happening we know who's gonna win but this just freshes it up a little bit lets us meet a new guy let him hate or like him a little bit and if you had to pick between as much of a baby face goody two shoes and holy shit god no then mike pence and tim kane are pretty Perfect realizations of that. You have the human sweater vest versus the guy who said Roe versus Wade belongs in the ashes of history. It's a little clear cut there. I mean, it's to the point that I'm just disappointed more and more every day that Hillary doesn't just come over to Trump's press conference with a steel chair and smashes him down, then tags in Mick Foley for the leg drop on his neck. I just think it would make things a lot easier if we cut out a lot of the intrigue of this election and just put the bullshit up front and let us wrestle it out. And that's why I got to tell you all today. Thank you. Thank you. Nate Bechtel. So, Nate is leaving to do shithole right now. Nate, are you doing the same set of shithole? I'm not, no. I've got another Ooh. set. Well, that was great, Nate. Thank you very much. Um, I do want to say, Tim Kaine may be a human sweater vest, but he likes the replacements, and anybody who likes the replacements must be at least a little bit okay, because they're <laughs> fucking great. Ladies and gentlemen, coming next to the stage, we have a seven-time Moth storytelling champion. He will be uh, on Fox next year as part of the new show, APB. This is Mr. James Gordon. Um... If you're looking for a book of intrigue, <laughs> you know, I always saw that like on TV shows and thought this shit was so lame when somebody did it, but it sounded pretty cool when I said it. You know so, <laughs> I don't know. No lack of self-esteem on me, huh? Um, this is my mystery book. Uh, the Warmest Winter is set here in Chicago. It's a murder mystery, actually, and I got copies. Make sure you grab a couple. Here we go. Yeah. <clears throat> The gate was pulled across. I shook the door violently and it wouldn't open. And the security guard yelled at me, hey, don't do that. It's closed. I found myself in a precarious situation of having to have to take a shit and nowhere to go. Uh. <laughs> 
It all began innocently enough in Naperville. Now I know you're saying, what was your black ass doing in Naperville? There was a, be- there was a beautiful woman there, so I went to Naperville <laughs> for a date. Figured I'd do something different. I didn't even drive there. I took the Metro, and the Metro is magnificent, leaving Chicago outward. It's okay inside of Chicago, but it's magnificent. It's like the Lexus of trains leaving out. And I'm sitting there, and I'm chilling, and I meet the young lady. She picks me up. Well, okay, before she picks me up, a cop comes by, and he says, hey, what are you doing? And this is me. I'm standing. I'm waiting. I tell him, I'm standing, waiting to get picked up. He said, is that all you're doing? I said, yeah. He says, okay, well, if you're not moved any uh, sooner, make sure you go about your business. I'm like, okay, officer, no problem. And he corrects me. It's detective. I said, okay, dick, cool, no problem. <laughs> I get picked up. We go to a date. We go to this bar. And, of course, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bar food eat do wings or a big-ass burger and fries or onion rings and a couple of be- That's my thing. I love that shit. So we're there, and she says, Oh, no, she's a bit of a snob. She says, oh, do we have to eat regular food like everyone else? I'm like, okay, you know, she's kind of hot. I'm going to go along with this tonight. I'm like, um, so what do you suggest? She said, let's try a vegetable platter. Take a look at me. I'm 233 pounds. Um, it's meat and everything. No, no offense to any uh, vegetarians or whatever, but mm, it's not my shit. So they come with the vegetarian platter. And it's got the ranch dressing and all that. So we're eating, you know what I'm saying? Drinking a little wine and what have you. It's cool. I'm like, okay, I'm not starving. That's cool. She's okay. Let's go to the next place. We go to the next place. We're walking down the street. We're holding hands. I'm like, wow, this is progressing really well. (laughs) Shit. So we're walking down the street and there's this place in Naperville called Lay Chocolate. Now I love a chocolate shake. I love a chocolate brownie, chocolate chip cookies. I love just chocolate. I'm a chocolate, bless you. I'm a chocolate addict. It's just my thing. She says, hey, let's go in here. So we go in, and I order this big-ass chocolate shape. It's got whipped cream and everything. It looks fucking delicious, right? She orders uh, a nice, sizable brownie, but she also orders these powdered strawberries. And if you've ever smelled warm chocolate, I mean, the smell just emanates and opens up your nostrils. And she's got a bowl of that. And she starts dipping the strawberries in the chocolate. And she's not just taking a bite and eating these like normal people would. She's taking the strawberries. And I swear, she's like fellatioing the strawberries. Uh, Gentlemen, let your mind wonder for a minute if you can see what I'm talking about. So, like, there's the strawberry. And she bites into the strawberry. And it squirts the, 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 the red little juice. And the powdered sugar is getting on her lips. And then she's taking the chocolate, and so she must can feel that it's on her lips, and her tongue magically comes out of her mouth and just wipes it off, and I'm sitting here. This is me. <laughs> like, shit. I mean, I'm, this is the first date. I can't. So she says, what are you thinking? I said, you really don't want to know what I'm thinking. I can't tell you that shit. And so she says, hey, try a strawberry. Once again, she's fucking hot. I don't listen to my better judgment. I take the strawberry, dip it in. It is magnificent. Take a piece of the brownie. We finish up. We leave there. We go to the final place of the night. They're playing live music. Oh, my God. This band is magnificent. They're, they're jamming away. Time elapses. It's close to 1130 when my trainers have come. We hug, kiss. She drops me at the train. I'm on my way. I'm like, wow, this is a great night. I'm riding on the Metro. We're texting back and forth. Hey, it's good to see you. Good to meet you, too. Bye, 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 bye. Cool. Let me know when you get home. I said, okay. I get to like Western and I feel the tinge. Gentlemen, you felt the tinge. And you say to yourself, okay, I can hold it. No problem. Cool. 
it's just number one. You know, I just got to piss. No problem. If it stops and I there's nothing open, I can go in the alley, take care of it. I've done it. No problem. Boom. So right along and the stop before Union Station, I feel the twinge and the shake. <laughs> <laughs> My ass is on fire and it's quivering, right? And I'm like, oh, shit, no pun intended. And so I, the train stops. We're in Union Station. I jump off. I jump off and run to where the bathrooms were from early when I got on. The gate is pulled across because it's after 11 o'clock p.m. I go to the bathroom. I said, I know. I remember when the other bathrooms were. I run to that bathroom. I shake it violently. And the security guard hey, stop that. I'm like, man, I got to go to the bathroom. He says, it's closed. Are there any other bathrooms open? No, you're going to have to go somewhere else. I step outside Union Station. I see everything. Everything on downtown on a Thursday night is closed right in this circumference. You're probably thinking, well, there's more to downtown than right in front of Union Station. Well, guess what? I'm not going to make it there. (laughs) Now, my ass is no longer shaking. My stomach is bubbling. Everything is just, and you can feel, like, uh, if you've ever had to pass gas, and you've done that, but then you feel the one that's really sort of wet. And you're scared that if you do that, then the rest of it will come out behind it. That's where I'm at right now. So I clench my butt cheeks real tight. And I start, I'm hopping. I'm hopping, looking around. And in the distance, glowing, salvation is a porta poly porta poly right across by the parking garage. I run as fast as I can. That's a lie. I sort of, if you've ever seen the Hunchback of Notre Dame, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm going across because it's going to happen. If I run too fast, it's going to happen. I get there, I open up the porta potty, and oh shit. It smelled like hell in that porta potty. A dozen construction workers must have ate like pork sandwiches and went in there and, 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 and whatever. But I'm like, there's no other place for me to go. I take one deep breath, step inside, grab a bunch of tissue, put it across the seat, right? Because you can't just put your ass on the seat. I put it across the seat. I sit down. I pull my pants down. And as soon as I get them down, everything just goes whoosh. <laughs> Famous rapper Ice Cube has a saying about coming out 10 pounds lighter. That was my gastric bypass doing that shit right there. I exhaled like a Terry McMillan novel. I sat there, sweat was all on my face. I had my glasses in my hand. I was like, whew. I got up, wiped my ass, of course, squirt the the, uh, disinfectant. And tried to push the stuff down. And I see why it smelled because it didn't work. I didn't give a shit. No pun intended. And left the porta potty. There is no more precarious situation than when you have to take a shit and can't find a place to do so. Thank God for porta potties. Thank you. With a with a horrifying horrifying tale. Ladies and gentlemen, the bathrooms are right outside those two exit doors. 
Just look left or right, depending on which door you go out of. You'll see them. They work most of the time. Uh, coming up next to the stage, so Kitty and Larissa, I should have mentioned, helped to co-curate this evening, as well as picking the theme and all that great stuff. Uh, this next speaker is, is one of their friends. She's a DJ for Birds and B-Sides. This is Ruby Daydardines. I was 11 when I saw the ghost. We'd been surfing all day with my mom's boyfriend, Rob, 26, useless. And now we sat on the outskirts of his friends as the sun went down and they circled a bonfire. Someone busted out a guitar, because of course they did. Uh, Bob Marley, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Lenny Kravitz, I think you're picking up the era. Uh, <laughs> Rob led the sing-along and curled his slight Antiguan accent around the trills of a Jesus Christ superstar solo. <sighs> We sang, too, to the tune of whatever they played. Rob, don't quit your day job. <laughs> we were exhausted, salt-soaked, tired, and happy to be with these adults, but above them. My brother and I sat on the roof of Rob's rusted-out Jeep Cherokee, our backs to the fire, just far enough away to sing unheard. The wind was out and blew the flame high and low in gusts, so at times we could see the expanse of Tan Tan Bush before us all the way to Salt River. And then we would plunge into near darkness, and we could see only the hair that blew across our faces, the worn-out towels in our laps. A white dog began to approach us from the bushes, low to the ground, a happy canter. We watched him skitter towards us and then retreat whenever the flame got high and bright. We stared, delighted with the distraction, trying to make out his shape. Something very shaggy. Let's go say hi, Nick said, jumping off the jeep. Intrigued. I slipped down beside him. We wandered across the dirt path. Come here, boy. But he was fast, running back to hide in the blink of an eye. Every time we tried to get a closer look, he was gone, but then appeared again, approaching us with curiosity, until we finally got close, and the wind picked up the fire behind us, shining light on our furry friend until he was invisible. Our dog disappeared just feet in front of us, we grabbed hands and wordlessly ran back to the fire, the people, the sound of their voices rising in hallelujahs. Unlike me, my father believes in ghosts. He saw several as a child and told me of the encounters in a hushed voice, his eyebrows raised, imploring me to take this seriously. The day before his funeral, I sat in a hotel room as his mother, sister, and brothers recounted tell of the mean, old, see-through, dead lady who sent chills down their spine at the house in New Hampshire. They laughed and touched, touched the crosses on their necks. I cut my eyes at my brother. Let's get out of here, I said. This bullshit is making me angry, he seethed, through snot and weeks of tears. We know what we believe, and we know our father is over. And still he haunts me. I have reoccurring dreams where it turns out he's alive after all. Suddenly, in the middle of things, he appears. Hanging out in the background, he's not even seeking me out. I'm so very hurt he would let me think he's gone and see me grieve, only to come back after months, years. I spend my sleep crying and confused and begging him for answers, but he never speaks or even opens his mouth. The nonstop storyteller is silent. The man who would corner my friends at parties and with tequila on his breath utter the foreboding phrase, did I ever tell you about the time? 
The time Richie Havens open-tuned his guitar. The time he opened for Dylan at a cafe in Boston. The time he made spaghetti for Sly and the entire Family Stone. (laughs) The time he did coke with the police. I just laugh at their pleading looks because I've heard it all before and better you than me, my friend. In dreams, though, he refuses to talk. His dark eyes stare so wide and calm and serious. And what follows is a familiar shrug. What are you going to do, his shoulders say. That small gesture, the movement I know so well from him. The giving of it up of it breaks me. These dreams, they always end the same. It is dark out, and he's walking away. Into bushes, into the ocean, into the night so black it must be post-hurricane when all the power is out everywhere and there are more stars than you ever knew existed. I scream after him until my voice is hoarse, but he just lopes along until he's swallowed by the night. His warm denim button-up his cracked bare heels, the tiny curls at the base of his neck, brown and some silver scattered over dark freckles. They all disappear as I strain my eyes to see the last of him, walking away, shrugging. There's nothing left to say, nothing to be done. He joins the ghosts on the other side of the sun. Thank you so much, Ruby. Gosh, that was wonderful. All right, we're taking a quick hug break. Longer hug break. <laughs> it's all good. We, <laughs> yeah, uh, we have one more storyteller, guys, and we're going to take a, uh, a brief intermission. At the intermission, you can pick up copies of Taylor Swift, Girl Detective. You can pick up James's, uh, James's novel as well. Please talk to our wonderful creative people in-house. They really appreciate your support. But anyway... Uh, so this next speaker, he was a, a once member of the Nerdalogs, one of my favorite people to write a show with ever. Uh, part of the sketch duo Rabbit Rabbit, and Nate's gone, guys, right? Okay, Andrew, this guy's actually better at magic than Nate. I know it <laughs> seems impossible. But, uh, I know. This is, this is, uh, scandalous. Our secret Facebook group will be alight with scandal tomorrow morning. But for now, please welcome to the stage, Andrew Bentley! Yeah! Hello, I'm Andrew Bentley. Uh, I'm not the first Andrew Bentley, and unless the whole Olympics at Zika Ground Zero thing turns out to get way out of hand, I won't be the last one either. Uh, Previous Andrew Bentleys include a race car driver, a steel magnet, uh, a necromancer from an episode of Boris Karloff's uh, TV anthology Thriller, uh, and the episode The Return of Andrew Bentley. The protagonist of this Civil War novel, uh, published in 1900, that my friend found at a uh, thrift sale, uh, Andrew Bentley, or How He Retrieved His Honor, (laughs) and Andrew Jackson Bentley, my great-great-great-grandfather and a bastard. Not a, a bastard in the fashion of his presidential namesake, mind you, but a literal bastard. Andrew Jackson Bentley was born in 1834 in Ellington, New York, to Betsy Maria Bentley and an unknown father, or certainly an unadmitted father. With no verifiable paternity, Andrew Jackson took his mother's surname, and it descended from there through his son, 
his grandson, his great-grandson, and my father before coming to rest in fresh ink on my own birth certificate in 1987. It took that name 153 years to travel a mere 350 miles to New York City. In between, it traversed the Civil War, both World Wars, and Desert Storm unscathed. The Bentley name sped through war-torn Europe on the dark brown jacket of a motorcycle courier too young to vote, a boy who'd lied about his age to enlist. It descended by submarine to the depths of both great oceans. It endured Carolina summers and Michigan winters, and the time my dad almost poisoned me with cough syrup because he had just bought the bard's tale for his Apple computer and accidentally misread the dosage. <laughs> and it arrived here tonight by Jeep Liberty, proudly affixed to a man who once cried in fourth grade music class because he couldn't master Song of the Sea on his recorder. <laughs> and all in lieu of some other name. All born on the stubborn silence of a woman named Betsy in her willingness to suffer the cold opprobrium of an era which viewed her sexuality as at best a lamentable beast and at worst a damnable sin. What secret could impel such martyrdom? What man could have been worth it? In a century and a half, his is not the only disappearance. The second great mystery of my family tree is Conrad Scheffler. In 1894, he gave birth to Frida, my great-grandmother. By the turn of the century, Frida had arrived in Iowa with her mother and sister, but Conrad had vanished. Like Betsy's lover, he would remain missing until the new millennium. Enter my mother and my aunt, amateur genealogists. In both cases, the modifier serves only to denote the absence of a career in the field. It does no justice to the countless hours they have spent pouring through paper and microfilm and PDF, piecing together a playground of scattered wood chips into a passable family tree. For, the end, for in the end, it was by their hard work that both great Bentley mysteries were finally laid to rest. In sampling our Y chromosomes and cross-referencing against an ever-expanding online database, they detected a prominent and heretofore unaccounted interloper, the Bemis family. Existing records showed a geographical convergence of Bemis and Bentley around the time of Andrew Jackson's birth, and through dogged, if undramatic, perseverance, my aunt finally procured just a few months ago the death certificate of Conrad Scheffler. Now, the Bemis and Bentley chromosomes were similar, and both families hailed from New York, but to tie that to Andrew Jackson, what was needed was a tangible connection. And as it happened, there was a laughably simple one, waiting just outside the margins of our ancestry. Betsy Maria Bentley had two sisters. While she stayed Bentley, they took their husbands' names, and those new names lay waiting in a jumbled pile of 19th century records until regarded until that moment as two mere points of data in an infinite array of white noise. As it happened, they were the same name, for the two sisters had married two brothers. Both were named Bemis. As for Conrad Scheffler, he vanished first from society and then from this earth. On December 15, 1903, he hung himself in a Chicago prison, two weeks before his estranged daughter's ninth birthday. His crime is as yet undiscovered. When Betsy Bentley chose to take her family's shame upon herself when she kept her brother-in-law's secret lest it destroy two reputations or more. She may have feared the judgment of God, but not of history. She could not have known that her son's shadow would stretch forward to an age where it might be finally illuminated by science then inconceivable. If she had, could she have done it? Or would it horrify her that we might one day wonder between two possible fathers, or two motives, that we might mistake rape for passion or vice versa? When Conrad Scheffler tied his neck to the door of his cell, could he have ever imagined that from the daughters who disowned him would someday emerge a prodigal son, carrying not his name but some piece of him, some single drop of blood, back to the city that took his life? 
that he would be judged once more in absence? Would he have cared? Not only are these questions impossible to answer, but from our modern vantage, they are almost impossible to imagine. Barring a catastrophe so massive as to render them moot, such mysteries are now an impossibility. And what we gain in record, we lose in peace. For our sons and daughters will not be spared the bones of our secrets or the carnage of our improprieties. What might now seem consigned to shadow may one day be a matter of public record. And while our great works may echo all the greater, our misdeeds will stain as deeply. And in ignorance and anonymity, we will find no solace. Thank you. He made a mess on stage, but man, can you tell a story? I get to hang out and hear Becca sing now. I, I like that. No, we're just going to play. Oh, oh, yeah, I can't choose it. Uh, this is another Taylor Swift song. Okay. <laughs> is that what we're doing? Yeah, I th- um, yeah it's uh, Taylor Swift is covered by Bob Dylan. <laughs> I remember when we broke up the first time saying this is it, I had enough. I was like, we haven't seen each other in a month when you said you needed space. What? gonna change trust me remember how that lasted for a day i say i hate you we break up you call me i love you
Uh, so he calls me up and he's just like, I still, I still love you. I'm just like, I mean, this is like exhausting. Like, you know, like, we are never getting back together, like, ever. No, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. You must talk to your friends, talk to my friends. Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy your stories, you might also like Improvised Star Trek. Improvised Star Trek is an improvised parody of Star Trek featuring the adventures of the crew of the USS Sisyphus, a slightly less enterprising starship. For more information, visit theimprovisedstartrek.com. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.